I'd like for you to turn your New Testament to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. And I want to read verses 1 through 13 of the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. It seems like that um, the longer I preach, the longer I preach. Does it seem like that to you? It takes me longer to get through a text than it used to. Now, I, I, I thoroughly intended to get through this sermon uh, in the first service, you know, in, in one sermon. I, I, can't, I can't do it. So it's going to be one of those kind of uh, cliffhanger deals. And that's optimistic, you know. We're going to have to pick up where we leave off, but um, it just seems like that the more you get into the uh, expository preaching of the Christian life, the more it opens up. It's just great, really. So follow with me in verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who, walk, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. For if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now in life, everything has two sides. This Bible has two sides. This desk has, this pulpit has many sides, but it has a top side and a bottom side. Even a baseball has two sides, an inside and an outside. 
in an argument between a husband and his wife, and they get in an argument, there are two sides to that argument. There is the wife's side, and there's the right side. Everything has two sides. And the way we live in, in life, the way we operate, is kind of by mutual agreement, by, by reciprocal agreement. The two sides kind of come together in a kind of mutual pattern of acceptance and compromise and agreement. That's how we live and operate in life. For example, if I want to buy a television, I go down to the retailer to get a television. There are two sides that are involved. There's the side, his side. He, he knows how much the television is worth and how much he wants for the television. There's my side, how much I think it's worth and how much I want to pay for it. And so if he gives me his spill, his commercial, and he tells me that this television is worth this much and I'm willing to, to, to meet that agreement and, 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 and purchase the television, then we've, kinda, we've got an agreement together. He, I, I agree to his side and I'm going to pay what he asked for. So I purchased the television. That's not the end of it. He's not going to let me just walk out of that store with the television. There are two sides to that experience. I say I can pay for it. He says, well, let me see the money. My side and his side. He's not going to let me just walk out of that store with the television unless, you know, I make some, I, I put down the money or sign a contract and then he agrees, he, he agrees to my side. So there are two sides to everything. In spiritual matters, there are two sides. There is God's side and there's my side. Now God offers his grace to everyone and yet man must respond to that grace. There's no such thing as universal salvation. It is universal in the sense that God offers his salvation to every man, but not every man accepts his offer. Not every man responds to his atonement or to his grace. It's kind of like getting married. Now I don't know what other preachers do, but when I perform a wedding ceremony, both the, the, the man and the woman say, I do. I've often wondered what I do if they say I don't, you know. Suppose, you know, that I get down in the ceremony and, and I say, do you take this uh, woman as your uh, lawfully wedded wife? He says, I do. And I turn to her and I, I say, do you take this man as your lawfully wedded husband? Will you cherish and honor him for as long as you shall live? And she says, I don't. You know, where do we go from there? I guess we don't have a wedding unless both agree to say I do, you know. It's a mutual agreement. It's a mutual commitment. And, and it's not enough just for one to say, forsaking all others, I will cleave unto you for as long as I live. And so I turn to the woman and he says he does. And I turn to the woman, I say, do you forsaking all others? She said, I forsake all others except Tom and Dick and Harry, you know. It, it just doesn't work that way. Now, I've said all this to say, I've said all that to say this, that, that it leads us to, 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 to perceive or understand the crisis in the, in the Christian life. I believe that the crisis of the Christian life is this experience gap that exists between what God's Word says I am positionally and theologically and what I know myself to be experientially. There's a tremendous experience gap between what God says I am theologically 
and what I know I am experientially and practically. You see, there's a tremendous discrepancy between God's promise and our performance. For example, God says that I'm an overcomer and yet I know myself to be overcome. God says that I am totally adequate for everything in life. I am more than adequate for everything in life and yet I find myself to be so inadequate time and time again. God says that I am holy and righteous, just as holy and just as righteous as his son because he has imputed his righteousness to me. And yet I know myself to be so unholy and so sinful and so unrighteous. And I believe that the secret of living the Christian life is translating into shoe leather what God says I am theologically and positionally into what I am experientially. I believe that the secret of the Christian life is bridging that experience gap between what God says I am and what I know myself to be personally and experientially. Now, I believe there are two words that unlock this kind of mystery to me. Now, I want you to get these and hang in there with me. I believe there are two words that kind of serve as keys that unlock this whole thing to me. There is the word absolute and there is the word appropriate. Now, what God does, God does absolutely. He has made absolute provision for my sin. He does everything completely. He never does anything halfway so that God has made absolute provision for every sin for my life. And the Bible says that God has made provision for me and for you to be exactly like Jesus. He has made absolute provision for my sin. But in order for me to enter into that absolute provision, in order for me to benefit from what God has done absolutely, I've got to learn to appropriate His absolute provision. That's the key. It is learning how to appropriate and applying to my life experientially what God has already done absolutely. Now, there are several biblical illustrations of that. For example, 1 John 2.2 says... He himself, that is Jesus, is the propitiation, that is the covering for our sins. He's saying he, Jesus, is the covering for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, do you know this morning that Jesus died for the sin of the whole world, but is the whole world saved? Did you, do you believe this, that every sin of everybody in Durant, Oklahoma has been paid for by Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Say yes. Yes. Probably woke up your neighbor when you said that. But is everybody in Durant, Oklahoma saved? Well, what is the contradiction to that? I mean, 1 John 1, I mean, John 1, 29 said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. And yet there's so much sin left over. It's not all taken away. What is the, what is the problem there? What is the contradiction there? Well, John 3, 38 describes it. He says, He that believeth is not condemned. 
But he that believeth not is condemned already because he what? Hath committed murder or adultery? No, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now God in Jesus Christ made absolute provision for the sin of the whole world. That's his side. And yet man must enter into that provision by believing, by faith. That's his side. There's another illustration of it. You remember when God told Joshua, you lead Israel into the land of promise, into Canaan. And they were there poised, getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. We've established a couple of weeks ago that the New Testament sets forth the principles of the Christian life and the Old Testament sets forth or, pick, or presents the pictures of the Christian life. And we've, we said that Canaan is not a picture of heaven. Canaan is a picture of the fullness of God's blessing, the fullness of the blessing of God. Now God says to Joshua, I have given you the land of promise. I have given you fullness of blessing. I have given you the fullness of my provision. It is yours. I have given it to you. Then he said, and everywhere the sole of your foot touches, you will have, you will possess. In other words, he's saying, I have made absolute provision for the, for the blessing of Canaan, but you've got to appropriate that blessing by putting your foot on it, and everywhere you put your foot, that shall be yours. Now, God has made absolute provision. That's his side. And I must appropriate that for myself that's my side. Now I want you to go back to the 8th chapter and let's read verses 1 through 1 and 2 again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now watch this. Paul says that God in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin. Are you free from sin? Now, I'm going to illustrate it, and, 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 and I said in the early service that every time I start using illustrations that deal in, in terms of physics, that either Lewis Barker or Jerry Polson come up to me and, and, and work me over about that illustration. But they weren't in the early service. Uh, now, they may be in this service, but I'm going to go ahead on with it and just take the gamble. The reason why you and I are on this earth is because the law of gravity holds us here. Now, that may, you know, not, that may break down, but you trust me on that. We, we, we are here because the, of the law of gravity. It holds us down. But there is a law that is, there's another law that supersedes that law called the law of aerodynamics. It's what happens when you get in an airplane. And you get up a certain amount of speed and, and these things happen that happen and that airplane begins to rise and you begin to fly and, and it, that, that law overcomes the law of gravity and you fly. Now what Paul is saying is that the law of the Spirit of God in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. But you say, well, I'm still here. I'm still bound by sin. I still, I still feel pretty, pretty bound by that. The provision is, God's side is, that he has made the absolute provision that we're free from the law of sin. Our side is 
our part of it is that we walk not according to the flesh, but the Spirit. That's our side. So now, 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 now hang in here and watch this. God's side is that He's made absolute provision for me never to sin. And the provision is that my side of that provision is that I walk according to the Spirit. Now the key is, how do you do that? You're already asking that. Every time I come through here, read my quiet time, the 8th chapter of Romans, that's the question I ask. How does a person not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit? I believe there are three things involved. I just want to mention two and deal with the last, a little bit of an entirety. The first is the word discovery. Now the Apostle Paul made two great discoveries in his life. The first discovery led him to conversion to Christianity. It was this, that a lost man cannot keep the law. It is impossible for a lost man to keep the law, to keep the demands of a holy God. Paul said, I was doing just great with the nine, first nine commandments, but when I got to the tenth, that threw me. You read the seventh chapter of Romans, and this is what Paul is saying. He said, I was keeping the outward law. That's what the first nine commandments deal with, the outward action. He said, I was doing fine until I got to thou shalt not covet. And that's more inward. And he said, that threw me. In other words, he understood what Jesus meant when he said, you cannot commit murder, not commit the act, but if you have anger or hatred in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. And you might not commit the act of adultery, but if the desire is there and that desire is nurtured, you've committed adultery in your heart. And he's saying, I didn't do the outward acts, I didn't break the outward law, but inwardly I have broken the law. He was saying, I made this discovery. It is impossible for a lost man to keep the law. The second discovery he made is this. It is just as impossible for a saved man to keep the law of God as it is for a lost man. Now that seems strange. That sounds peculiar, doesn't it? I want to say it again. It is, as ju it is just as impossible for a saved man to keep the law, to meet the demand of a holy God as it is for a lost man to do that. Now listen to me. You and I will never enter into the victorious, triumphant life until we make that discovery that you cannot keep the demand of a holy God. Well, you say, well, that's pretty pessimistic and fatalistic. What's the answer to that? Well, the answer is found in verse 4. It says this, In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, there's a key word in verse 4. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that word is. You guess what it is, the key word. Well, it's, it's, it's a two-letter word. It's the word in. He says the law, the, the requirement of the law was fulfilled in us or is fulfilled in us. It is not fulfilled by us. You cannot fulfill the demand of the law. You, it's not fulfilled by us. It's fulfilled in us. Now what does that mean? It means this. Now watch this carefully. 
He is saying that God has placed in us to indwell us someone who can meet every demand of God and fulfill the requirement of the law. He's saying, I've put somebody inside you to indwell you who can fulfill every demand that God requires so that I can honestly say, I can say to God, you make the demand, you make any demand on me you want as long as you take responsibility to fulfill the demand. And that's what's happening. God makes a demand upon our life and He puts someone within us who can meet that demand, who can fulfill that demand. And that person is His sinless Son, Jesus Christ. Have you made that discovery? There is a second word. It's the word decision. Now the phrase in verse 4, according to the Spirit, is a phrase... That, that means something like this. It means dominated by. It's the idea of domination. And he's saying that the person who fulfills the requirement of a holy God is the person who is decided, who has decided that the Holy Spirit will dominate his life. He's the, per he's the person who has made the decision that he's going to allow his life to be regulated and dominated by the Holy Spirit who indwells him. Now listen carefully. You and I do not live the Christian life by willpower. Almost everybody I know who sits in a pew of a Baptist church and most of the people I know who stand in a pulpit of a Baptist church have the conception that the Christian life is lived by willpower. And we read Charles Shelton's book, In His Steps, and we say, well, that's the way Jesus would do it. I'm going to grit my teeth and so help me, I'm going to do just like Jesus did. And we're going to exert our willpower, and by our willpower we're going to live the Christian life if it kills us. Listen, folks, you do not live the Christian life by the power of your will. You live the Christian life by the choice of your will. You make the decision. From now on, I've decided that I'm going to let Jesus Christ dominate my life, the Holy Spirit to dominate my life and control my life. I'm going to make the decision that Jesus Christ is going to dominate me. Now, we, we kind of get the idea that, you know, if I can go to church and I, if I go to church enough and enough of these Bible conferences and go off and listen to these uh, speakers, I get all this information. This information is going to help me live the Christian life. N no, information from God, spiritual truth and the knowledge of it is like gasoline. You can have a tank of gasoline and, and, and if you don't have something that will spark that gasoline, you get nowhere. Now, you can have all this information about God and His Word, spiritual truth, but the spark that ignites that, that enables you to, to enter into fullness of life is this. You decide, you make a decision once and for all that you're going to let the Holy Spirit dominate your life. Now that leads us to the third word, and that's, this is the, or the, the, the third idea, and it's the most important. I want to spend the rest of the time on the first point of this and take up later. The third word is this, 
discipline. Now, I'm sorry, I know that word you wish I had never said. It's true. Now, I want to I come back and put it all together. I want you to see it. Oh, how desperately I want you to wake up and get this. God has made absolute provision for me to be just like Jesus. But I've got to appropriate, learn to appropriate that provision. And the way I appropriate it is by walking according to the Spirit and not the flesh. And the question is, how do you walk according to the Spirit and not the flesh? Well, the first step, the first thing has to do with discipline. Now, wouldn't it be so easy if we could just have some kind of great emotional experience and, 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 and in the Christian life and that emotional experience just catapult us down the way and we'd just, be, we'd just be living the victorious full life from now on. Wouldn't that be great? We look for that, don't we? I'll come to church, I'll go to a revival meeting, I'll go down here at the altar, I'll pray and I expect God just to do some kind of a dramatic thing that'll just catapult me into the Christian life. Now, it, He does that initially. For example, when the children of Israel went into the land of Canaan, what was the first city they conquered? I asked the first service this and nobody knew the answer. What was the first city they conquered in Canaan when they crossed the Jordan? It was what? Jericho. Somebody knew it. Give them an A. It was the city of Jericho. Now how did they conquer the city of Jericho? They just shouted. They walked around that city a few times and they did that stuff that God told them to do and they shouted and the walls came tumbling down. It was a great, dramatic, cataclysmic experience. But did you know that not one time after that was any city conquered like that again? As a matter of fact, every city after that was conquered as a result of their disciplined life. They had to remove the idols, the sin that was in their life, and they had to walk in the ways of God. After that, there was the initial emotional experience, but after that, there was the disciplined life that enabled them to conquer. Some of us live the Christian life like riding a soapbox derby. You ever ridden in a soapbox derby? You get in one of these soapbox derbies and somebody gives you a little shove and you go down this hill, man, you're rolling, you're, you're going. And, and you're going down this hill and you get to the bottom of it and you just kind of level out and slow down, come to a grinding stop. What do you do? You look for some other, somebody else come along and give you another shove or you look for another hill to go down. And so we say, well, you know, get us another preacher in here. I need another shove. Bring us a revivalist in here. Bring somebody in here else. Really stir our hearts. I'm just ground, I'm just ground down to a standstill. And we need somebody to give us another shove so we can get started down another hill. That's the way we live the Christian life. And you're never going to live the Christian life apart from discipline. You know when they put those sacrifices on the altar in, 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 in the Old Testament, you know what they had to do? They had to bind them with cards, with bands, and sometimes the priest had to get a flesh hook because as those sacrifices would burn, they'd fall off the altar. Now, I've put myself on the altar of God. I've surrendered my life to Him, but I'm pretty slippery. I find myself slipping off the center of the altar. And so the priest of God, the Holy Spirit, has to take that flesh hook and bring me back. You know what that flesh hook is? My discipline. Now, what does that discipline involve? It involves two things. I want to mention one. 
It means this. It means that I learn to mind the things of the Spirit. That is, I set my mind on the Spirit. It means it's a strong word. It means to be preoccupied with the Spirit. For you see, where your mind is, that's where your feet are going to be. What you think about is what you're going to do. You tell me what you think about all day, how, what you're preoccupied with. I'll tell you what you do and what you are. The Bible says, as a man thinks, so is he. He said, set your mind on the Spirit. Now we're at a hazardous point in the Christian life, I think, when we talk about the life of faith because we assume that to live the life of faith, the life of trust, means you have to jettison your reason. You have to, you have to jettison your thinking. I wish you'd look through the Bible sometime and find how often, how much, your mind is involved in your Christian walk. Because if you put your mind on it, if, you pre if you're preoccupied with it, that's the way you're going to live. And we have that fa favorite verse of Scripture says, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is, if you're going to live the transformed life, you're going to have to have your mind renewed. What does that mean? Well, the mind is like a computer. Now, I know very little about a computer except I've had a little experience with them. As a matter of fact, yesterday, this is what I did. I dialed this number that I had on the telephone, long distance number, and when I finished dialing it, this lady came on and said, that number has been changed, stand by for the real number, the correct number, and that number came on. By the way, when, when something like that happens, these recordings come on, are you like I am when, when, when they finish talking? Do you find yourself saying, thank you? you know, I, I do. I say, I'll catch myself. You know, just about that, not knowing that there's nobody there. It's a machine. It's a computer. And that computer is so programmed that when I dial that incorrect number, that computer went to work and the correct number came on and wasn't even anybody there. Isn't that amazing? Now, the problem with a computer is that it just can feed back the information and the data you feed into it. There's a cliche in the computer field called garbage in, garbage out. What that means is that if you feed it incorrect data, that's what you get back. It just assimilates what you put into it and puts that back. So if you feed it wrong information, you have to reprogram it. Now, what do you do when you reprogram a computer? You put the correct data into it. You put the right information into it, and that's what you get back. That's what it means to renew the mind. Now, watch carefully. There are some illustrations of it in the Bible. Do you remember when Israel came to Kadesh Barnea and they sent 12, 12 spies in to spy out the land? And ten of them came back, and this is what they said. They said, man, there are giants in there, and we're like grasshoppers. We can't take that land. You know what they were doing? They were feeding back the information that they had in the program, in the computer. They were saying, we saw giants, we're like grasshoppers, we can't make it. That was probably true. But there were two men, Joshua and Caleb, who, came, who said, no, we can take it. Let's do it. Let's take it. Let's go. Didn't they know about the giants? Yeah, they knew about the giants. 
Didn't they know that we were grasshoppers? Yes, they knew that. Well, what was the difference? Their mind had been reprogrammed. And they had some new data. They had some new information. That new data, that new information was the promise of God. And the promise of God was that they could take the land, it was theirs. And they just started feeding back that reprogrammed mind. You see what I'm saying? The second illustration took place with Simon Peter. You remember when he was up on that housetop and he had that vision? Somebody calls it a dream, others call it a nightmare. For him it was a nightmare. And God put down that sheet of uncleaned animals to the Jews and he, uh, he said, now Peter, I want you to take these animals and eat them. You know what Peter did? He said three times, he said, I cannot eat anything that's unclean. And the third time, God said to Peter, he said, whatever I've cleansed, let no man call unclean. Have you ever wondered why God put him to sleep and, and gave him that vision? Let me tell you. It's because he wanted to reprogram his mind. You know what was in Peter's mind? That Gentiles were unclean and couldn't be saved. And God had this man, this Gentile named Cornelius, he needed somebody to preach the gospel to him. So he put Simon Peter to sleep, reprogrammed his mind, and sent him over there to preach to him. An unclean Gentile who couldn't be saved, and he was saved. Now, if you and I are going to walk by the Spirit, live the victorious life, we're going to have to reprogram the mind. Now, where is this new data found? It's found in this book. Now, you tell me, and some of you have, I want to live the Christian life. I want to be victorious in the Christian life. I want to, I want to be just like Jesus. No, you don't. For if you did, you'd spend more time in the Word. I want to ask you a question. How much time have you spent alone in God's Word this week? Now you're going to get all kinds of data and information. Most of it is fiction. And you're going to operate on the basis of where you set your mind on this data that you're getting from the world. And you have to have the data and the information that's in this to live the victorious life and you don't spend any time there, how are you going to get it? And not only that, not only how much time are you spending in the Word, but how much time you need not to spend where you are spending it. In other words, how much time have you spent as compared to the time you spent alone in God's Word? How much time do you spend watching television? How much time do you spend reading magazines, newspapers, periodicals, and, and, and novels? How much time do you spend talking to others, getting the information that's from them? And if two weeks from now you come up to me and you say, well, I, I decide I'm going to live, I, I live the Christian life. Two weeks ago I did just exactly what you told me, what every evangelist has said. I've come to surrender my life to the control of the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't work. I, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask you, how much time did you spend in God's Word along with God? as compared to what you spent, where you spent other places. For you see, what preoccupies us controls us. You know that from college, don't you? When I was going to college, I, I had a full-time job, worked all night. I'm going to give you a little sad story, kind of like when I used to, was a kid, walked in the snow barefoot five miles to school with, with a bobcat on my back. 
working all night, you know, and I was pretty, pretty weary, and, and I'd go to class, true story, I'd go to class, and the teacher would give us assignments, give us, give us work, give us lectures, give us lessons. I wouldn't hear a thing he said. You know why? wasn't because I wasn't listening. I was there. I, I needed it. It's because I was preoccupied with something else. I was thinking about that baby that was on the way. I was thinking about that job I was having to do, work all night. I was thinking about the bills that were coming to you. We didn't have the I, I was preoccupied. Let me tell you something. When you and I make the decision that we're going to let the Holy Spirit dominate us and we begin to set our mind on the Spirit so that we're preoccupied with us. You say, sure, you preachers, that's all you do and you study and read the Bible and pray. We're out there in the big bad world. It doesn't matter if you're out there in the big bad world if you're preoccupied with the Spirit. If you're preoccupied, if your mind is set on the Spirit, you say, that doesn't work. Don't knock it till you try it. I'm absolutely convinced that the result of the preoccupation, mind set on the Spirit of God and, 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 and mind preoccupied with the Spirit of God and the things of the Spirit of God, and the product of that is that he begins to live the victorious life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have given us great, profound truth. And now I pray that you'll have us, give us the courage and the faith to act upon it. Because I pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Now, God is, God's side is, he's done everything that's necessary for you. Your side is that you have to appropriate it by faith. And the invitation this morning is this. Three invitations. One is to come and receive the gift of eternal life. God has saved you from your sin. He died for you there. You've got to appropriate that salvation. You've got to claim it for yourself. You've got to repent of your sin and come and trust Jesus for that to happen for you. I mean, it's there. It can only happen to you when you appropriate it. So the invitation is for you to come and receive the gift that God purchased when He gave His Son. The second invitation is for those of us who need to join the church to come and place our life here. And the third is to make the decision this morning, however that happens to say, I want to make the decision to let the Holy Spirit dominate my life. I've made the discovery. I can't do it myself. So while we stand to sing, we invite you to come.